Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. It's interesting because in the Navy, there is a ship called the USS Trayer. And it's only been commissioned for a little bit over 10 years, but it has already become known as the unluckiest ship in the Navy. Now, how did this relatively new ship, the USS Trayer, become known as the unluckiest ship in the Navy? Well, let me just read one person's experience, and I think that'll enlighten you. Here's what he says. It's impossible to see more than a few feet through the thick smoke. But what I can make out is bad enough. The deck has buckled upward, and fragments of tables and chairs lie piled among broken steel beams. Sporadic flashes of light illuminate a severed half-body dangling from a pyramid of debris that reaches to the ceiling. Trapped and wounded men are calling out from all around, their moans punctuated by the groan of twisting, ruptured metal. I'm on my knees, doubled over, struggling with the weight of a stretcher as I maneuver under a fallen piece of wreckage. Our ship has just taken a direct hit from an enemy missile, and my teammates and I have to extricate as many casualties as possible from the impact zone. The man on the stretcher doesn't sound good. He's gasping for breath, trying to get oxygen into his smoke-damaged lungs. I'm finding it hard to breathe myself through the sweaty flash protection hood that covers my nose and mouth, and I'm struggling to see through my helmet's fogged-up plexiglass shield. I hope my team will be able to find an exit hatch, one without a raging fire behind it. We've got to get this guy out of here without killing him or getting ourselves killed in the process. We find ourselves in a debris-free quarter and stop for a head count before pressing on, arms burning from the weight. Four stretcher bearers and two other men make six. There are supposed to be nine of us. Where are our other three team members? Can you imagine how you might feel in that scenario? how frightened, how your heart might race, how you might want to tense up, maybe give up in this moment of intense terror and fear as your ship has been hit by a missile and there is debris and chaos all around you. The doors you touch are warm from the fire behind them. I I can't imagine, but I, I can think this. This is certainly how people enter into a state of post traumatic stress disorder going through things like this. Only, only the USS Trayer is a simulation exercise, it is a ship commissioned 10 years ago by the U.S. Navy north of Chicago. It's not even in a real ocean. It's in a huge 90,000-gallon swimming pool. And 
It is a place where recruits and others who need to be inoculated and protected against fear are sent so that they can experience what the trauma of warfare might look like. And what the U.S. Navy has discovered over the last 10 years of sending men to experience the USS Trayer is that this simulation exercise has the ability to produce in these men through training, through feedback, what they call a warrior mind. That's exactly why they do it. Because they know that if they can simulate it, and by simulate it, I mean, listen to this. Running over the ship is a gentle breeze in this huge swimming pool created by fans to make it feel like the ship is in motion and that there is a breeze from that. There is an odor and a tang of the sea that is generated by odor machines to make it smell like the sea. There are waves being generated in this 90,000-gallon pool by wave machines. And that dangling half-body that I read about, that's, of course, a mannequin. But it is made to look as realistic as it possibly can. They even have voices emitting from injured soldiers, mannequins lying in the quarter, calling for help. This is how realistic they attempt to make it because the science of it has shown that, yes, there are some people that are a little bit less prone to panic in situations like that, but if they train their soldiers, they can get more and more and more men and women of the Navy to be resilient, and that's the exact purpose of this exercise. Here's the thing. And we've said this several times during this series. Fear in a fallen world is meant to be God's protection on us. It's intended to be a blessing to warn us of dangers around us. Because a fallen world in reality is also a very really truly dangerous world. And we need to know what things to avoid. Not just physically but spiritually as well. And so God has given us this gift of fear to keep us from getting into situations where we we might be harmed or damaged. And so we're going to experience, it's going to happen that we experience fear in life. Thank God it's going to happen. On the other hand, the Bible makes it very clear that God never wants fear to control you. There is a difference between experiencing fear and being under fear's thumb, being mastered by fear. This is why the Navy has the USS Trayer, because they don't want their men to be mastered by fear, even though they would train them to say, it's okay, you're going to experience some fear. But over the years, they've noticed that there is a way to keep things like post-traumatic stress disorder at bay if they're trained well. In fact, one of the statistics that led them to this conclusion is very few special forces, men and women, such as Navy SEALs, for example, far fewer 
of these types of warriors ever experienced post-traumatic stress disorder because they've been trained and placed in stressful situations before they're even placed into battle. So the question is a natural one, right? What about us who most of us are not going to see warfare or battle, but we are going to see spiritual warfare and spiritual battle. We're going to constantly and daily fight the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. We are going to see challenges to our faith and to our hearts in this life. Can we train to develop the warrior mind? Can we train to be more resilient? And that's the whole point of today's message. So let's read what John wrote, and we'll seek the answer to that question. 1 John 4, 13 to 18 is the main passage we're going to talk about today. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. We underline that phrase. There is no fear in love. And then underline the following phrase, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So we're going to break this down, and I'm actually going to take it uh, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, and we're going to look at this passage. But before we start to dive into this passage, I want you to go back with me to a passage we studied three weeks ago, Psalm 56, and I want you to notice what King David says. Now, David was a man who constantly was faced with fearful situations, whether it was to his physical well-being, his emotional well-being, his spiritual well-being, it was day by day by day. Now look what he says. Not if I am afraid. What's the word there? Help me out. What's the word there? Not if I am afraid, but it's going to happen. Circle that word when. It's going to happen that we have fears, as I've already said. But what does David do? David turns when he has fears. He has trained himself. He has learned from all these frightening experiences that when he is afraid, the thing to do is turn. And what does he turn to? When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So here's our first point. Fears are a challenging part of life in a fallen world, but they are a part of life, and yes, they will challenge us. There are dangers all around us, both perceived and real. How did the apostles get their U.S. 
S trayer experience? How did they get trained to face their fears such that later on in life when they were persecuted, in fact, 10 out of 11 of the remaining apostles after Judas betrayed Jesus, 10 out of 11 were killed through persecution. Only one, John, who writes this, is given a natural death of natural causes. How did they face that? How, where did they get the courage to keep on going? And I really believe that their training was, of course, all during the ministry of Jesus as they watched him interact with people and saw the threats against him, but none more so than the weak prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, starting with the day that we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday. I want you to think about this for a moment. And if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to John chapter 12. Jonathan earlier read the account from Mark, and we had the uh, children sing a beautiful song about this, how when Jesus came in sitting on that donkey, people were praising him, lifting him up, singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But do you know what comes after that? Probably on the very same day, certainly during this week before Jesus' death and resurrection, it says that there were some people who came up to worship at the festival. And if, you're, if you've got your Bibles open, I'm in John 12, verse 20. They came to Philip and they wanted to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and here's what Jesus answered them. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What's Jesus telling them? My death is coming, and I know it. And it's close. Now listen further. Verse 27, now my soul, this is Jesus talking, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What's Jesus experiencing here as he faces his impending death? And, and we see this only build, don't we? Do we remember the night that Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he is begging Peter, James, and John to pray with him. And he says to them, my soul is troubled. I am feeling the waves of death itself roll over me. And he was so stressed. If this is not fear, I don't know what else to call it. He was so stressed that the Bible reports that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And that's why we know that fear is not a sin. It's not, it's not a sin to become afraid in the face of real danger. But what's beautiful about what Jesus does, he shows us the way to resilience. He shows us the way to the warrior mind. Because what does he do? He does exactly what we just pointed out that David did in Psalm 56. What does he do? In the midst of all that, he turns 
to God. He turns to his heavenly father. He knows that his father loves him. He is even so confident of that love that he says, Father, take this cup from me, but if that's not your will, then your will be done. I rest confident and assured of your love. And then once he is refilled with the Father's love, what does he do? He looks outside of himself. We've said this several times during this series, haven't haven't we? What does fear tend to make you do? It makes you think about yourself because fear is painful. When you're frightened, it's hard to think about anyone else. But Jesus turns to God the Father, fills himself again with the confidence of his Father's love, and then he begins to let that love overflow through him. When he's hanging on the cross, dying for your sins and mine, the full weight of our sin on his shoulders, he has the love to look at one of the guys being crucified next to him, And he says, today, you will be with me in paradise. He has the love to look at the crowd of the very people who had crucified him and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He has the love for his father to say, Father, receive my spirit. Jesus knows in the midst of this stress and this fear to turn to the Father. Now, I don't know what area of your life it is where you are experiencing fears. I can almost guarantee that almost everyone in this room is is experiencing fear in some part of their life. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, my life is not matching up to its potential. And that's creating fears. I thought by now I would be married. I thought by now I would have this promotion. I thought by now I would have bought the house that I want and moved into it. I thought by now. And that's creating fear. Jonathan said it earlier. Those are the very thoughts that we may not even realize that they are fear, but they are. Maybe health is your concern. Maybe you've received a diagnosis or a loved one has received a diagnosis that is downright frightening. Maybe, maybe it's a matter of your, your livelihood, your physical life. You don't know where the next meal is going to come from. You, you don't know if you can pay next month's rent or next month's car payment. Maybe you're afraid that you've done something that is going to damage an important relationship in your life, someone that you love dearly, and that you have done something unforgivable that is going to wreck that relationship. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm afraid right now that I'm going to disrupt this message. We have fears, and and, and they change through our lives. Think about what your fears were in high school. Is this girl or this boy going to like me? Am I going to pass this test? Am I going to graduate? 
And my, man, when I was a high school teacher, seniors, they were overwrought about trying to make the right college choice and the right career. It felt like I got to decide right now when I'm 18 what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Think about your fears in college. Think about your fears when you were in your first job. Like our fears migrate and mutate over time based on where we're at in life, but they are many. And this is where, like Jesus, when they become intense, we have to commit to not letting fear rule. Yes, experience fear. That's healthy. Even name your fears specifically. That's good. But determine that with God's help, you are not going to allow fear to control you. And this starts here. It starts with getting our minds right. Take a look at what it says in Romans 8, verses 14 and 15. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's who you are. We repeat that over and over here at Crosswalk. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. Here's the key. It's not wrong to experience fear. It is wrong to become enslaved by our fear. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Circle that phrase and write the sin. If you want to know what the sin is against God, it is allowing yourself to live in fear when you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, Paul is writing to the Romans, don't act like slaves because you are not slaves. And especially don't act like slaves to fear because you are what? Sons, not slaves. You are children of God, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. I told you I'd break down the main passage. Let's go back to that. 1 John 4, 13 to 15. It's right there at the bottom of page one. This is how we know. Look at how many words there are about getting our mind right. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. We are indwelt by the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And we have seen another head word. We have seen, our minds have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We have a Savior who has stretched out his hands on the cross for every last one of you and me and the world around us in love. If anyone acknowledges knowledge, if everyone understands in their mind that Jesus is the Son of God, what does that mean? God himself lives in you. Now, you cannot have God living in you and be a slave to fear. You can experience fear, but you will not be a slave to fear when God, by his Spirit, lives in you. That's why John is pointing this out. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives them in them and they in God. Sin, sin twists fear because sin and Satan want us to be 
enslaved by fear. So write this down. Sin can twist fear and turn it into our master. It's no longer at this point a a gift of God. It's a strength that has been turned into a huge problem. But by the Spirit's power, we are not slaves, we are sons. (coughs) Turn the page. There's a gal, a neurobiologist, has studied fear for the U.S. Navy for years and years, and I love what she does. Her name is Lillianne Morjika Parodi, and in order to study fear, she gears guys up with all kinds of sensors, men and women, on their bodies, suits them up, puts a parachute on them, and throws them out of a perfectly good plane. And she measures their body response. And over the years, what she's noticed is there is a complete difference, not just based on DNA, but also based on training. When people have been taught to turn to the right things, that the fear response gets modulated, that yes, they still feel fear. In fact, she would tell you that when she tosses people out of planes, if the sensors say they don't experience any fear, that's when she's worried. Because that person is not normal. In fact, she will recommend that they are rejected. But the person who can experience fear, and while they're still plummeting on their way down to the ground, can modulate it, bounce back from it, get control of themselves, begin to reason themselves through what they're doing. Remember, get your mind right. She finds that all the emotional responses begin to fall into place as well, and the person quickly gets back control. That's the very definition of the word resilient, right? Resilient means you bounce back. It's not that you don't go down, but that you quickly come back up again. That's resilience. And this is what John the Apostle is saying. It is possible for you as a follower of Jesus Christ, when you're facing fear and danger in this world, to experience that fear and danger and bounce back Quickly, take a look at what it says in 1 John 4, 16. And so we know, there's that that rational, intellectual, I've got this in my head, but he doesn't leave it there, does he? We know and what? Rely on. It's not just a matter of my mind, it's also a matter of my heart. In other words, as I'm plummeting, And as my training has taught me, do I know that I can rely on the parachute that I've packed? And as Christians, who is the parachute that you've packed? None other than Jesus Christ. And this is what John is saying. We know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. His love is reliable and trustworthy. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Will you underline the phrase, lives in God and then God in them? That's important. 
Because he's saying this is a two-way street. When you trust Jesus as your Savior from sin, when you know his forgiveness, his grace and mercy, the thing that maybe you can't see but you need to believe is absolutely true is that you are living in God. God surrounds you. And God is living in you. He's right here inside of you. We just read about how the Holy Spirit is inside of us. What does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us what that means. We live in God. Take a look at the next passage, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. Doesn't matter how dangerous the situation is, in other words. And the mountains quake with their surging. Here's what I know. I live in God, and he is my fortress and my refuge, and therefore the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When you live in God, you live in a strong fortress. You live in a refuge, a hiding place. Think about the response of fear. Fight, flight, or freeze. What's the saying? You want to fight? Man, you got no better platform to fight fear and to fight the things you fear than God because he is a fortress. Your fears tell you to flee. You have no better place to flee to than God because he is your refuge. And by the way, if you want to freeze, take a look at 2 Timothy 1.7. By the way, I think I've shared this with you before. This is my life verse. And I can't, I can't tell you how important this verse has been to me in my life. This is a very personal mantra that I believe that God had Paul write to Timothy and therefore Paul write to me and to you. To remember that not only do you live in God, but God lives in you. And because God lives in you, listen, the spirit God gave us does not make us what? Say it out loud with me. Does not make us timid, frightened, but rather gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You want the antidote to fear? Memorize this verse. I don't know what I'm doing, but something I'm doing. (laughs) Memorize this verse. God has not given you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. His spirit living in you will help you overcome your fears. Write this down. We We live in God, so we live in a refuge and a fortress. God lives in us, so he gives us power, love, and self-discipline. There are true results of living in God and him living in us. And there they are. Now let's go back to what the Apostle John writes in his letter. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is a beautiful 
explanation of what John is going to tell us next, which is that perfect love drives out fear. What does that mean? This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. First of all, perfect love drives out fear means that when frightening things come along, when fear threatens to control you, you turn to God's perfect love for you, that he was willing to send even his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to redeem you at the cost of Christ's own life. God's perfect love will drive out your fear, but it doesn't end there. Because John in that passage we read says this, Dear friends, since God so loved us, so we ought to love one another. In other words, an aspect of perfect love driving out fear is take action. Stop, consciously stop thinking about yourself and saying, who can I love here today? Because God has said that when his perfect love fills us up, it will not just sit there, it will pour through us and then we will love one another. We'll walk into a room like this room, we'll walk out onto a patio, or we'll walk over to pick up our children and we will look around and we will say, who has God put here today that I can love? And when we do that, what do you think happens to your fear? You've stopped thinking about yourself. When you fill yourself with God's love and you look out for who else you can love, fear begins to evaporate. It dissipates. You know what I call this? I call this a basketball move. And when I coached high school basketball, I would always tell my players, in case you get yourself into a dangerous situation, you know what the most dangerous situation in basketball is? Maybe some of you never learned what the most dangerous situation in basketball is. I'll tell you, it is you've picked up your dribble. Not a good idea unless you know what you're going to do with it immediately. Now, high school players have a tendency to pick up their dribble, which leads to an even more dangerous situation called a trap, where two defensive players converge on that player and begin to swipe at the ball and block any opportunity to pass. Do you know what the defense for the person who has the ball is in that situation? They can't dribble. It's called a pivot. What they can do is they can turn their body. There's another thing that's important about a pivot than turning your body, though. It is looking over your defenders. So you turn your body back and forth to keep the ball away from those guys, keeping one foot planted. You look over those defenders for a teammate. John is saying... Brothers and sisters, you spiritually have a pivot. David used his pivot. When, he, when I am afraid, I trust in you, God. He turned to God. John says, whenever I'm in danger, I use my pivot. I, I turn and I look past the danger to God and his love for me, his power. Can I ask you, 
in whatever situations are causing you fear right now today, are you using your pivot? Listen to what John says as we close this out. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Now that sounds, what? We are like Jesus? I'm nothing like Jesus. I'm sinful. But this is what John means. When Jesus was afraid, he used his pivot. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he used his pivot and he turned to the Father. And that's why John can say there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Here's our final point. We can be resilient in facing our fears because like Jesus, we know how to pivot our hearts to our Father's love and our hands towards serving him and one another. Pivot, pivot, pivot every time that you are in danger and Satan wants to put you in his trap. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. So here's what I'm gonna encourage you to do wherever you're afraid. When I am afraid, I will use my pivot to turn my heart to God's sure love and my hands to his great commands to love him and love one another. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your amazing love, the love that caused you to send your son Jesus to be our savior, the love that caused him to sacrifice himself on the cross to take away all of our sins. And, and we live and we want to live even more deeply in that love and forgiveness. Help us to remember that your perfect love for us drives out our fear and help us to remember to get our minds right. Help us by your spirit's power to have our hearts be in a place of peace and then to take action and pivot toward loving you and loving one another. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. I hope that today's message has given you hope that you don't have to live in fear. That you now have a way to say, I have my fears, I experience my fears, but I now know how to get in control of my fears because God will help me. I have my pivot and I can turn to his sure love for me. And in that love flowing through me, I can look around and say, God, how can I love you more? And how can I love my neighbor I'm going to send you out with the Lord's blessing. Don't forget that next week, or this week actually, on Friday, Good Friday services are at 7, and Easter services are at the normal Sunday times, 9 and 11. Go out there and invite some friends to join us next Sunday. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and grant you his peace. Amen.